Okay, church family, well, we're going to um, jump into our time in the, the Word this morning uh, to finish up this series on spiritual gifts. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, um, it certainly won't be the end of the whole topic of spiritual gifts, but this is sort of going to end the uh, little, I guess, theological study we've branched out on to, uh, to just look at all the gifts. And over the last two weeks, we've looked at the speaking gifts and the serving gifts, um, and, and last week, just to, to recap, the serving gifts we looked at were the gifts of, of helps, um, very simple one, people who just can't help but help, <laughs> right? That's people who have the gift of uh, helps, um, leadership, um, direction, um, and uh, administration gifts that help to uh, lead, lead the church, um, giving. We looked at the, uh, the, the serving gift of, of giving as well. Uh, we're all commanded to give, but giving is also a, a gift. And so there's some that are, we looked at that word, uh, metodidomy. It is, uh, they're super givers, right? They can't, they can't uh, help but uh, give and give a lot. And then there's the gift of mercy. And we'll look at somebody today who had that gift in Scripture, uh, which is just uh, compassion, as Jesus had. And we'll look at, we looked at the gift of faith, and we looked at a lot of um, uh, people in Scripture, but also missionaries and people who had the kind of faith that can move mountains, right? That's the kind of uh, faith that is. It's not a saving faith or the daily faith we all need, but the gift of uh, faith is an extra measure of faith that believes the impossible can happen. And then we looked at the gift of discernment. We're all to exercise discernment. We're all to be discerning as believers. Um, but there are people who have an extra special measure of discernment that they're able to look beyond what is said and what is done to the lying spirits that are behind those things if they are indeed counterfeit. Today we're going to be looking at the sign gifts, and uh, we have distinguished these gifts as sign gifts for a couple of reasons, and I haven't really established what those reasons are yet, so I thought I'd take a moment or two to to tell you what those reasons are. Uh, The first reason really is that the signs and uh, the wonders, as we'll look at that word in a moment, um, authenticated the message of Jesus. They were signs that basically uh, proved that he was who he said he was and what he was saying was, was true, and that was true of his apostles and also their associates. And so the reason here we're making this distinction from, say, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts uh, is because the sign gifts bear an authenticating relationship to the apostles. Uh, that mes- Their message was validated. And you have to consider that uh, because, you know, the apostles were running around saying, yeah, so there was this guy uh, in Nazareth, and uh, he was the Messiah, uh, and he was crucified, and he's risen from the dead. And so now we all need to follow him. And that would be a hard thing to swallow. Uh, how many of you would just run off if someone came in and gave us some kind of crazy message like that? We'd want a little, you know, something substantial to follow. And so uh, signs were often given to authenticate their message. And so that's what we're going to look at today, sign gifts. Uh, the sign really comes from 2 Corinthians 12, 12. So I want to start there uh, today. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says this, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And so there's the word signs. It speaks of uh, the things that were accomplished through the, the uh, apostles. That word signs is semion. It's important to start with that word because we're going to see it a lot. A sign was something that really distinguished some uh, person from another person. 
by something. That, you, that thing was usually a, a, an unusual occurrence of some kind that uh, would transcend the common course of nature. That's a, a sign, something unnatural, which would distinguish an individual. Uh, for example, on the day of Pentecost, Peter gave a sermon to explain the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? Well, he had to do that because something very unusual happened. They all began to speak in different languages. And everyone in the city began to wonder what was happening with these guys. They knew them. They, they knew they couldn't speak those languages, but they were speaking languages that they, uh, up to that point, uh, did not know. And so Peter gave a, a sermon to explain, ah, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, right? When he said the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. That's what you're, you're seeing. But then he transitioned in that sermon to speak about Jesus, which is a key thing, because ultimately these gifts, these signs, and these things were to authenticate a message. What is the message? Well, it's the message of Jesus. And so naturally, Peter uses that opportunity to say, well, I've got your attention now. Something miraculous has happened. Let me tell you about Jesus. So in Acts 2, he says this, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. And he begins to go on to say, yeah, you crucified him, but he died and he's risen again. But notice in that verse that you see there are miracles and there are wonders and there are signs that are all attributed to Jesus, that they authenticated his ministry. And that's why he uses those words, miracles, wonders, signs. And for Jesus in his ministry, the first miracle performed was um, in um, a, little, a little town where he turned water into wine. You remember that in John, right? And it tells us there that that was the beginning of signs, the beginning of signs. So that's really where the, the miracles started, right? And he began to use those as signs of authenticating his message. The second reason we've chosen to sort of use signs or, or kind of designate them separately from speaking and serving gifts is because there is a lack of command in Scripture to do them. Uh, you are commanded to love one another. You're commanded to serve one another. You're commanded to edify one another. You're commanded to bear one another's burdens, right? There's all these commandments in Scripture in terms of how we are to relate to one another. Do you know there's not one that says, make sure you heal one another? Make sure you do miracles in your midst. No command you will find in Scripture. You are commanded to evangelize. You are commanded to give. You are commanded to show mercy, even though you may not have the corresponding gifts of evangelism, giving, and mercy. Isn't that interesting? So nowhere do we see a command that you must heal all the sick people that are in your church. Yet many churches today seem to be focused on those kinds of things, right? Big, big healing services and stuff. Yet there's no command to do those things. One last reason we're designating these separately is that um, these gifts are only listed here in 1 Corinthians 12. They're not found in Romans 12. In fact, we're done with Romans 12. The seven gifts we looked in Romans 12, are, we're, we're, we've covered all those, prophecy, teaching, exhortation, leadership, helps, giving, and mercy. We're all listed there. But do you know none of these uh, sign gifts are listed there? They're only here in 1 Corinthians 12. And I say those things just to really establish this, that I think we have to admit that we're dealing with some very, first of all, unique gifts, okay? And we're also, if we're going to look at the biblical use of them, which we're going to study today, we also have to admit that they're very, very, very rare. Now, 
at the outset, let me just say a couple of things. I am not saying that the gifts we're about to look at don't exist. In fact, you just have to go to our website, read our statement of faith, and you'll see uh, that is not the stance that Calvary Chapel takes officially. Here's, here's what it says on our statement of faith. That we believe in the present ministry of the Holy Spirit and in the exercise of all biblical gifts of the Spirit according to the instruction given to us in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. We believe that all gifts can be used, but they must match up with Scripture. So I'm going to take some time to, today to make sure we understand what we're talking about when we talk about these miracles. Um, well, these, these gifts, and one of them is the working of miracles. Working of miracles, signs, tongues, and interpretation of tongues are the four um, things that, well, we're going to look at two of them today because we don't have time to look at all of them. And I know some of you are like, ah, oh, waiting to get to the part about tongues. You're going to have to wait a little longer. In fact, you're going to have to wait till we get to chapter 14 because he's taking the whole chapter 14 to talk about it. There's no point in me bringing it up now. Let's deal with it when we get there. But today, we're going to talk about the working of miracles and healings. So let's look at working of miracles. They're found in 1 Corinthians 12. In verse 10 is where he mentions it. Uh, he says, right at the beginning of it, to another, the working of miracles. And then in verse 29, he sort of reiterates that, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles. Now, when we look at this word miracles, or we talk about miracles, uh, three words are frequently found together in the New Testament in connection with just miracles. Um, and the most common, I've already mentioned, it's signs, say my on, okay? Um, the other two, though, I want to point out to you today. The first is wonders, wonders. And the word is teras. Wonders is an inter interesting word. It means um, a prodigy or a portent. And you might be thinking, well, what is that? I don't mean like a child prodigy who is, you know, really proficient at the piano. But a prodigy, the word has this idea of an un amazing or unusual thing. Or portent has the idea of like an omen, right? Some kind of idea like that. What this is, it, it's something so strange as to cause it to be watched or observed. The idea, it's, it, you, it's a wonder to the eyes. Have you ever heard that? It's a wonder to the eyes to behold. This is something palpable, detectable to the senses. And that's where we see signs and wonders. It's something that you can witness, you can see, you can, you can sense. It appears 16 times in the New Testament, always in the plural, so wonders, and always with the word signs. They always go together. Very interesting. Here's the other word. The other word often you come across is the word miracles. Sometimes um, mighty deeds is how it shows up in Scripture. But the word is dunamis, and it is power. That is the word, power. That's translated miracle nine times. So when you read miracle, it's a good idea to go look up the Greek word to see if it's dunamis or not. Now, this word dunamis, this is speaking of an event which demonstrates supernatural power, okay? So when you put all these three words together, they're often together here. Um, you have, right, the signs, and you have wonders, and you have power. You can define a miracle as this, and I'm, I'm going to put up on the screen uh, for you to help you. An unusual, observable, detectable event of supernatural power, which accompanies the servant of the Lord to authenticate divine commission. That's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? But those words, I didn't put them there. They're all together when miracles are brought up, specifically about the apostles and about uh, Jesus. Unusual, observable, detectable event of supernatural power, which accompanies the servant of the Lord to authenticate divine commission. 
Now today, when we talk about um, miracles, we use the word quite loosely, don't we? Right? You, you might, coming up next week, say, oh, it was a miracle. I got a, a parking spot at St. David's during the bank holiday, right? You might, that would be a miracle. Probably really would be a miracle, all right? But we also might say somebody that survived a horrific car crash, a miracle, right? The Newmans were in a horrific car crash. When I heard about it on the, 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 the call, I thought, oh, that's it. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, it's it, cars overturned on the highway. You're thinking, wow, miracle to me. Like, I, that w- so we would use miracles in those senses as, as well. Now, my, does, does God do miracles today? Absolutely. I am not going to stand up here today and say God doesn't do miracles. I would never limit God. God can do whatever God wants to do. But let's be clear about what we're talking about. And a lot of people change the goalposts when you start talking about this stuff. We're not talking about what God can or can't do. What are we talking about? Spiritual gifts. We're talking about, do people today have the gifts of working miracles? That's the question that we have to uh, ask. So let's start by looking at some New Testament examples, should we? Um, signs and wonders, we use those two words, were demonstrated by the apostles. Obviously, they were by Jesus. But let's look at the apostles. In Acts 2, 43, we're told this, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So there's the unusual things that were detectable to the senses, right? Those are the things that they were able to see. These were done by uh, the apostles. And that's all the case all through the book of Acts. As you begin to read, that kind of phrase is, is used of them. You go a few chapters later, you find the same thing in Acts chapter 5, verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. So here you go. You have signs, you have wonders, and all these things being done by the hands of the apostles. But signs and wonders were not only limited to Jesus and the apostles. It's interesting. When you read the New Testament, you find out that they were also worked by some very close associates, right? You read about Stephen. Stephen wasn't an apostle, yet he did signs. In Acts 6.8, Stephen, full of faith and power, that's actually dunamis, did great wonders and signs among the people. So Stephen did some kind of signs. We're not told specifically yet, but he did signs as well. Philip. In Acts 8.13, this is not the disciple, Apostle Philip. This is the one of the seven that was chosen as deacons. This is that Philip, Acts 8.13. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So Philip did that as well. And we're also told that Paul and Barnabas were granted the power to do signs as well. It's not a surprise about Paul, but Barnabas. Barnabas got in on the action. In Acts 14.3, Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So both of them, Paul and Barnabas. So here's the question. What exactly were the wonders or miracles that the apostles did? We're just told in those verses, right? Just very basic. Well, they did signs and wonders. Well, let's think about what Jesus did. He walked on water. He made bread. He took a coin out of the mouth of a fish, right? Um, he peered or disappeared out of the midst of a group of people who wanted to kill him. Remember that? He just, poof, he's just, he's just gone. He stills a storm. After his resurrection, he appears in the midst of the disciples in a locked room. He ascends into heaven, right? Some pretty crazy things. Jesus um, did miracles of nature. A lot of those are miracles of, of nature. And they were only done by him. You can go to the Old Testament and you can see some of those things done. And we certainly do. I was re- rereading some of that today. 
right? You have Elisha making an axe head uh, float, right? And, and feeding 100 men with uh, 20 loaves of bread. And um, on and on, you, you read about And Elijah uh, as well, praying that it wouldn't rain and all those things. But in the New Testament, you know, as you read the New Testament, no disciple is ever reported to having done a natural miracle. There's, there's nothing. You have none of them doing anything like that, like that, that Jesus did. So the question is, well, what did they do? What were the signs and the wonders? Well, the key is in the phrase that Paul gives us here in 1 Corinthians 12. The gift is called the working of miracles. That's what he uses. That's the phrase. Working of miracles. It's the operating of power. In fact, we looked at that word workings back in verse, uh, verse 6 earlier where it was um, translated activities, right? It's energy. It's uh, it's operation. So the idea here, I think, is this, that it's, it's worked out or it's energized. It's the working out of power. It's the working out of power that was worked in by Jesus. Let me show you. I want to take you to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and we're going to look at the beginning of verse 1. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. This is when Jesus is about to send out the 12. Remember, he's been traveling around with them but here he's going to send them out to do the work um, uh, on their own. In Luke chapter 9, verse 1, it says, He called 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. This is a very, very important verse. There's that word power, dunamis, okay? And authority, exousia. Those are very important words, and we're going to see those again. Power and authority. Power and authority over what? Two things. Okay, just two things are listed there. He didn't say power over the seas, right? Power over storms. He says power over diseases and demons. Those are the two things. And guess what? He also gave this power to the 70. If you're in Luke 9, just turn to Luke chapter 10. Just turn your page there and look at verse 17 and 19. Remember, he chose 70 disciples to send out. In verse 17, it says, Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Well, obviously they had the same power that was given to them because the demons were being cast out. And he says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority, exousia, to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall be by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Right? They're like, this is amazing power. This is so cool. He's like, yeah, that's fine. But I mean, I, I booted Satan out of heaven. <laughs> this, is, this is nothing. It's no big deal to deal with his, his minions. Don't rejoice over that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So they had this power as well, and they were uh, stoked about it. They thought, this is amazing, right? And that power, what they were doing, they were working out. They were energema, working out that um, power, healing people of disease, casting out demons. Now, I won't focus on the healing part because we're going to get to that in a moment, but let's just look at the casting out demons portion just for a moment. When Jesus cast out demons, people recognized right away that, that he did it with power and authority, those two things. In fact, they were astounded by it because nobody had power and authority over the, uh, the, uh, the you know, supernatural world in that way. But in Luke 4, 36, let me show you this. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is! For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. What are they blown away by? Right? The, he just commands them, and they, they come with a, with a word. 
they come out. And so obviously he has power to do that, but also authority to do that. He ranks higher than demons, right? And that's how Jesus did it. He did it with a word. Come out, right? Be, be gone, whatever. Away with you. <laughs> whatever you would come up with. In Matthew 8, 16, there's another example. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And the disciples did the same thing. Although we do find sometimes they were a bit limited, right? They, the one time they couldn't do it, and they went to Jesus, and he said, oh, this one only comes out by prayer and, and fasting, right? But, but Jesus did it with a word. Now, here's my question as we've kind of looked at some of these things. Is this kind of thing happening today when we talk about the workings of, of miracles? So people kind of miracle uh, crazy. We do hear about miracles happening maybe in some of the charismatic churches. We've been reading about miracles happening from the Roman Catholic Church for years. They've been documenting miracles. You can go to their website and they've got their, you know, 80 healings and all those things. They, 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 they document them. But what is the purpose of those miracles, right? What is the purpose of those things? Have? Are they there to authenticate the person or the persons or the church or whatever as being of God? Is that why those things are, are happening? Because you can really read about some, some crazy, crazy things. I mean, in 415 uh, AD, they found the bones of Stephen, the martyr, right? And they took him to Africa, and apparently all these miracles started happening because of bones, right? They, they found the arm of John the Baptist, and all of a sudden, all these miracles are happening because of a bone, or the breast milk of Mary, right? And that's pouring out of statues here. And it's just the crazy things you start reading about. It just starts to make you go, well, how do I know what's real? How do we distinguish between what's real, what's, what's counterfeit? Well, I would say by, to begin with, we have to look at the, the biblical model and the biblical examples here. The miracles of Jesus demonstrated power and authority. The miracles of the apostles which again, were limited to healings. And I would add in raising people from the dead. That's a big healing there because they did those um, and casting out demons. They did, the same, they did the same thing. But listen, the purpose, the purpose was always the same thing. Go back and read the New Testament. It was to confirm the message, to confirm the revelation of God. There was no written word, right? They needed something to confirm that their message wasn't a bunch of, you know, hooey. It was real. And listen, God has operated this way all through history. Do you know that miracles have not been happening just, just since creation. Just go study history. They are at particular times in history when God wants to operate with miracles. You go back to Moses, right? And when the coming of the law and establishing Moses as a leader, you read about a bunch of miracles happening during that time. You come into the prophetic time, you have Elisha and Elijah, and God is established in that platform of, of prophetic revelation, and so miracles are happening. But you know, as you read through the Old Testament, you get closer and closer to the end, you know what you find going further and further away and disappearing? Miracles. You get to the end of it, there's no miracles at all. And then what happens between the Old Testament and New Testament? Anyone know? What's that period called? 400 years of what? Silence. It's called silence because not because God took a nap. But God wasn't actively revealing himself in any way. And if he's not actively revealing himself, guess what? He didn't need the miracles. He didn't need the miracles to substantiate the revelation like he did in those times. But then the New Testament comes. Jesus comes along. And we have this miracle in Cana of Galilee, water turning to wine. But you know when that happened? That happened when he was 30. You know that for the first 30 years of Jesus' life, no miracles. 
It happened at the beginning of his public ministry. Yeah, you can, read, you can read some apocryphal writings, and there are wacky stuff that you can read about Jesus, you know, making a clay bird and giving it life and, you know, all kinds of things. It's, it's rubbish. As I mentioned, we're told in, in John 2, this is the beginning of signs. That's where miracles began to come back into play. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what time are we in, in now then? Because the canon of Scripture is closed. God does not have to substantiate things with miracles. He can substantiate it through His Word, His revealed Word, the Word of God. So I think I have to look around and say, is, is God doing miracles through people all over the place? Is that really happening? I think if we really look at the biblical model and how God operates in history, it would suggest that those things are happening rarely, probably not as frequent as people claim. And you might be sitting here saying, well, sometimes though a miracle is needed to, to confirm God's word, right? Yeah, in the New Testament for the written word, yeah, you needed it then. But, but listen, do you remember when Jesus told that parable about the rich man and Lazarus, right? They both died. The rich man went to Hades. The Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. And uh, the rich man realizes, uh, I made a boo-boo here, right? He's being tormented. And so he says, Abraham, would you send Lazarus back to my five brothers, right? Go send this guy back from the dead to them and warn them. I don't want them to be here. And, and I probably would have done the same thing. Like, somebody needs to warn my family. And Abraham says to them, Moses and the prophets, that's who they have, right? They can consult Moses and the prophets. What's he talking about? They have the Old Testament. They can read the Old Testament. And the man's reply is, no, no, that won't work. But if someone comes back from the dead, that'll work. You know, then they'll, then they'll repent. And here's what Abraham says. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And guess what? Someone did rise from the dead, and people don't listen to him today. So is the gift of working of miracles really in existence? Here it is. It will be given by the Holy Spirit to the right individual at the right time in history. Then, then it's working, right? And guess what? We can just read further on. We know that there will be a future time in history where those kind of miracles will be happening again. And it's in Revelation, right? John writes about these two witnesses in Revelation. They will have power, that word there is exousia, over nature, we're told. The disciples didn't even have that, but they will have power over nature. In Revelation eleven six, 6, it says this, these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Why aren't they here today? <laughs> no rain. That would be great, wouldn't it? They have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And then it tells us in verse 7 that they're going to be killed. They're going to be killed by the beast, but it will be, quote, when they finish their testimony. You see, they are there doing miracles. Why? To confirm their message. But when their message is done, when their testimony is complete, the beast kills them. They lie in the street for three and a half days, and what happens? They rise from the dead, and they ascend into heaven, just like Jesus did. That's going to happen in the future. We know that. So I can tell you, yeah, that, that's going to happen there. What, what about our period of time? Listen, I don't know. I don't know how God's doing it or when he's doing it, right? If there, is there a place somewhere in the world that would need someone with the gift of miracles to, to confirm something? Maybe there's language barriers or whatever. Sure, Absolutely. But what we can't do is just fall into this trap of like, oh, did you hear they did miracles, right? This guy did this and this guy did this and just run all over the place getting nutty about it. I think we have to approach it properly, right? This is all the disciples were able to do, right? He, they were limited to these things. You read about people like, oh, you know, um, 
casting out demons left and right. And even some of those guys you read about them will say, well, yeah, but I have some difficulties. Sometimes I can't do it. That never happened with Jesus, right? Gone, gone. My concern is, is, is people being, you know, run around, running around chasing after these, these things, hoping to get a little experience, right? Hoping to get in the excitement. Uh, I, I think we have to be a little more grounded than that. But why is Paul listing it? Because it happened during that time. The apostles were doing those things. And so he's, listen, there's, there definitely was gifts of the working of miracles. And they continued throughout the New Testament, right, to confirm the message. And we know that will happen again in the future. But we have to be careful, folks. We've got to be discerning. That's all I want to say about the, the, the miracles today, because we've got to get to the healings. Oh, boy, there's a whole bunch more to talk about there, isn't there? But let's look at the gifts of healings in 1 Corinthians 12. You find it in verse 9, where it just says... Um, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit. And then he repeats it in verse 30, do you all have gifts of healings? So uh, remember, we're going to get to that section, but Paul is just asking rhetorical questions there. Does everybody have this gift? Does everybody have? No, well, the que- no, they don't all have these uh, gifts. And in Corinth, they were all seeking those super you know, high-profile gifts. So the word healings here is just, you know, it's a rare word. It's only used here in this passage uh, it's yama, and in the Bible here, it really literally means healing. You can find some um, extra biblical texts where it means remedy or medicine, but here in the Bible, it does just mean uh, healing. So what is it? Well, it is the ability to intervene in a supernatural way as an, as an instrument for curing illness, right, to, to restore someone's health. And Jesus, of course, was the extreme example. And I'm just going to fly through some of these uh, here, because we want to look at Jesus, first of all, as the example. How did he heal? Well, much like he cast out demons, he did it with a word, right? Just with a word. And I, I love the story in Matthew 8. He was um, in Capernaum. A centurion came to him. You remember that? And he says, listen, I have a servant lying at home, and he's paralyzed. He uses the word dreadfully tormented. And so Jesus just says, well, I will come, and I'll heal him. But the centurion's reply is, is brilliant. I love this. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Right? I, I, he just revered Jesus. You, you shouldn't come there, but only speak a word. Only speak a word and my servant will be healed. That's amazing faith. He knew the power of Jesus. If you just say a word, I know that he'll be healed. And Jesus is amazed at the man's faith. Remember that? He's like, there's no faith like this in all of Israel. And so what does he say to him? Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And the servant was healed that same hour with a word. Just said it. The guy was healed. Jesus wasn't even there. How else? Well, with a touch. We know that he went around and touched people and they were healed. But you know what? People even touched him and they were healed, right? I love the story of the woman with the bleeding issue, right? She just wanted to get to him. If I can just touch his garment, she's just got this internal dialogue going. If I can touch his clothes, I shall be made well. And we're just told in Mark 5, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus felt something too. What did he feel? Power had gone out of him, right? Dunamis had gone out of him. But that was just with a touch. And that gave us a clue to the third thing. Immediately she was healed. None of this long, drawn out thing. We'll go back home and you know, we'll see how this, you know, your back pain will slowly ease. Instantly she was healed. She felt in her body that it was complete. Um, a deaf man was, was healed. When Jesus passed through the region of Decapolis, he healed a man who had been deaf and had a, a speech impediment as well. 
And so he put his fingers in his ears, he touched his tongue, and we're told there again, immediately in Mark 7, immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loose and he spoke plainly. You know, it didn't take time. He didn't have to go to speech class. He had never talked, right? Like you go, oh, now you've got to go learn how to speak. Instantly, whole, completely. And that's the, third, the, the fourth thing. Completely he healed people. Completely. You didn't need anything more. Peter's mother-in-law is a great example. In Luke 4, 38, right? He goes to Simon's wife's mother, was sick. She's sick with a high fever. Um, they requested that he come. And so it says that he stood over her and he rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them, right? Remember I mentioned the Chosen series last week? They do these things really, really well because it, it's exactly like, you know, she's there. She's, it looks like she's in a coma, right? And he goes, you're done. And she sits up and goes, oh, there's people here. I got to start serving. And she's just about, there's no like, oh, I'm so groggy. I was like in this deep sleep. Boom. She's active and she's up and she's serving them and taking orders and making drinks and all kinds of things because why? She was completely healed. And the last one is that he healed everybody. He didn't look the guy at the wheelchair in the front of the row and go, oh, I, I can't heal him, but I'll take you in the back. We have a friend, paralyzed, had a terrible fall in skiing accident, and he was paralyzed. Uh, and he drove up north up to San Francisco, you know, in California, and went to a Benny Hinn. And they rolled him up to the front there, and Benny saw him and literally says to his guys, I can't heal him, and they rolled him away. Yeah, because he wouldn't be able to jump up out of that wheelchair. You have so kind of these slow rehabilitation things that they talk about, right, that would take place. We knew he was paralyzed. We knew he hadn't been able to walk. I didn't have any hope that that would actually happen from a guy like him because he doesn't heal everybody. Jesus did, though. In Matthew 9, 35, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now, Jesus didn't have to do that. He could have healed a few, and that would have, you know, confirmed his message, wouldn't it? But Jesus had something else going on, didn't he? He had compassion. We read those last week when we looked at mercy, right? He just had compassion. He, he probably had a lot to do, but he just, oh, I'm, I'm going to heal these guys too. I'm going to heal these guys. You know what? You guys go get water. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to keep healing them. Now, listen, the apostles had the same gift of healing. I'm just going to go through these rather quickly here. Peter, Peter healed with a word. He healed with a touch, and he did instantly and completely, just like Jesus. You have the lame man by the gate, beautiful, right? John was with him in Acts 3. And uh, remember the guy's begging and, and Peter looks in his eyes and says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. So in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And it tells us this, immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. The guy was up and moving right away. And Peter became so well known for his healing power. People laid their, their sick outside hoping that Peter's shadow would fall upon them. And maybe the, you know, some kind of healing power would, would come from his shadow. Paul healed with a word or a touch and instantly and completely. When Paul was in Lystra, he healed a man who had been crippled from birth. And all he said was, stand up straight on your feet. And we're told he leaped and walked. In fact, Paul became so well-known as well uh, for the healing that people took handkerchiefs, they took uh, aprons, and they took them to the sick, and they laid them on them. And we're told the diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them just because of those aprons and handkerchiefs. Now listen, people took those, right? Just like people hoping that Peter's shadow would fall on them. These are people saying, he has the gift of faith. I, I might be healed if I just can get a fabric. This is not Paul. 
selling aprons and handkerchiefs, right? But you know what? That's what we have today. We have the reverse happening today. People say, well, listen, you can take a prayer cloth, right? Take it home, touch it, um, pray, send it back to me, and I have the gift of healing. I'm going to pray over this prayer cloth. And listen, I really wanted to purchase a prayer cloth for today's sermon as an illustration. There are healing rooms in England and Wales. You can look it up, healingrooms.org.uk. I did. I went to the place where you purchase prayer cloths. You can't make this up, guys. Go do it. Go look it up when you get home. <laughs> what does it say when you say, I want to purchase a prayer cloth? Here's what it says. I wrote it down verbatim. Due to COVID-19 restrictions, we are currently not able to send out prayer cloths. <laughs> Amazing. Now, why are we laughing? This is ridiculous, right? If there was anything with those, this would be the time it would be booing. Like, let's send as many as we can can. Why do they not want to send them? Because guess what? You've got a whole bunch of people saying, well, that works. Give me a prayer cloth. Probably didn't have enough supply. And then you're going to have a whole lot of praying to do. And what about the angry customers who want their money back? Because it didn't work. Like, you know what? It's best just to put up some uh, COVID-19 restrictions. We can't send this out. I could get whatever I wanted during lockdown from Amazon and Tesco, but I can't get a prayer cloth. Listen, I know, I know I'm, I'm making light of that. What I'm, sa- I'm trying to say is that I think, I think people are easily uh, duped into these things because there's a false hope, right? Um, if, if I can just pursue, the, it's the side, it comes from the wrong idea, and we're going to get to it in a minute, that God just wants all his people healthy, right? The healthy, wealthy, prosperity type of thing, and that's not the case. But let me move on. I'll come back to that. Um, looking at um, raising people from the dead. Jesus did it, obviously, Lazarus being the, the, the best example there, but but Peter did it too. Do you remember Tabitha? Her name was, that was her Aramaic name, but her name in the Greek was, was Dorcas. And she, she had the gift of mercy. We looked at that last week. People who had the gift of mercy. She made clothing for the widows. That was her gift. And guess what? She died, which is an interesting thing. If healing has anything to do with like, faith and stuff, here was a woman of faith using her gift, and yet she died. But Peter went to the upper room. He went to her. People were wailing and mourning that she had died. He kicked everyone out. And he, t- he turned to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. We're told she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and we had called the saints and widows. He presented her alive. Instant, instant revitalization. Paul got in on that action as well. You might remember Eutychus, who was overcome with sleep while Paul was preaching for hours into the midnight, and he fell from a third-story window. We're told that he was taken up dead. And Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him, said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. So just touching him, apostles, they healed with a word or a touch. They healed instantly. They healed completely. But guess what? One area they didn't heal. They didn't heal everybody. Paul didn't heal everybody. You know his friend Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus, we're told, was sick unto death. And Paul writes in um, Philippians 2.27, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. He couldn't heal or he didn't try to heal Epaphroditus. How about young Timothy, his pastor friend, 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Frequent infirmities. Well, if Paul had that, that gift, which we know he did, why didn't he heal Paphroditus? Why didn't he heal Timothy? What about Trophimus? We're told that he left him in Miletus, quote, sick in 2 Timothy 4.20. Well, great friend, if you have the gift, why didn't you heal Trophimus? 
And even Paul himself, he had frequent infirmities, didn't he? In fact, he writes to Galatians, he says, you know that because of my physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first, but he didn't heal himself. Why is that the case? It would appear that Paul used the gift sparingly and only for its intended purpose, which, like a miracle, was to authenticate his message. And so if it wasn't related to the message, he seemingly didn't bother to heal his friends or himself, but he definitely had the gift. So what should we think about the gifts of healings today? Does God want the church to be physically healthy? Can we support that in Scripture? I'm just going to take you to Paul's response concerning his own infirmities, since we just talked about him, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my what? Infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's interesting. I'll boast in my sicknesses. I'll boast in my infirmities that the dunamis, the power of Christ, may rest upon me. Listen, folks, sometimes we get sick because God wants us to realize that that his grace is sufficient. God wants us to trust him. So why are churches obsessed then like with uh, things like the gifts of of healings? If they're so prevalent to, uh, to us, why weren't all the gifted healers of the world, I think about this, mobilized and sent to areas of the world that were hardest hit by COVID-19, right? What, wouldn't that be the first thing you do? Like, that's it. Let's get on the horn. Let's call all the gifted healers and let's start sending them out because we have a pandemic. Didn't happen. Let me, here's, here's what I think. I think that didn't happen because the real gifts are rare. Other than the reference to the gift here in 1 Corinthians 12, do you know that no epistle mentions healing at all? other than James. I don't mean the Gospels. The Gospels are telling us what the apostles did, but there's no instruction to the church regarding healings. There's none. We're not commanded to heal. We're not commanded to even seek the gift of healing. The only place that we find instruction is in the book of James. And so I want to take you there because if that's the only place, let's see what James has to say about it. It's James chapter 5, near the end of your Bibles in the New Testament. Right after Hebrews, if you find Hebrews, Hebrews and then James chapter 5. Let's just look at this. We'll read verses 13 to 15 to begin with. It says this, James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Now, let me just start by saying that this is not a blanket formula for healing the sick. Some think it is. I, 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 sadly, it's not. This is not like, oh, this is all you do, and you can heal the sick. Otherwise, we wouldn't have any sick in the church, right? There's three things to note, and I'll take them one at a time to help us through this passage because it is often greatly misunderstood. First of all, the context is suffering. I just went through this whole book with another couple, Jody and I reading through it, and uh, the context of all of chapter 5 is suffering. That's the whole, that's what he's talking about, suffering. If you go back to verse 10, he says this, My brethren, take the prophets 
who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. That word suffering there is kakapathaya. And it is this, the suffering of evil, trouble, distress, affliction that comes from the suffering of evil, the prophets who suffered evil. That's the example being used. In fact, verse 11, the example they use is Job. Did Job suffer at the hands of evil? Yeah, it was Satan, right? Satan was harming him. So yes, that's suffering. And that's the context. In fact, that same word or the root, a root word of that is being used in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering, as kakapatheo, undergoing hardship, enduring afflictions, hardness, suffering, trouble? What do you do if you are? Pray, it says. Pray. And if anyone's cheerful, well, then you should be singing psalms, right? That's the instruction there. But look at verse 14. This gets to the, to the meat of it. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them. Now, this should be the giveaway here. What is it not telling us to do if you're sick? If you're sick, go call all the gifted healers in the church. Does it say that? No. It says call the elders of the church. Why call the elders? They don't necessarily have the gift of healings because it's the spirit who gives to each one as he wills. And if elders were required to have the gift of healing, to be an elder, then would Paul not have added that as a qualification in the list of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, right? He must be the husband of a wife, blameless, not greedy, not drunk, and a healer. Doesn't say that. So why are the elders involved? This should be a clue to us, yet we often just overlook this. You have to look at the word sick. The word sick there is astheneo, okay? Now, it can mean a lot of things. In the Gospels, virtually verbatim, it means disease, Okay, sick. But in Acts and in the epistles, and James is an epistle, it means weak faith or conscience, as we read through in 1 Corinthians with the weak conscience. Okay? So how do we know which meaning it should carry? Is it people who are diseased or is it people who are weak in faith? Well, it tells us by the word used for sick in verse 15. See, we've got to do our study and we've got to look at both. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. It's a different word for sick. That word is kamno. That word only means to be weary. How do we know? Because it's only used two other places in the New Testament, and it means the exact same thing. And I want to show you those two places. Hebrews 12, 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become sick, no, weary and discouraged in your souls. You see that? It speaks about spiritual fatigue and feebleness, weary, discouragement. The other place we find it is in Revelation 2, 3. It's the letter to the church in Ephesus. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So listen, folks, this is someone who's become weak in the faith. They become discouraged because of the suffering like the prophets and Job that they have undergone. And they need the elders to come, and they need to do two things. And here's the parts that we know about, right? What's it say? Call the elders of the church and let them pray over him and anoint him with oil. Now, let me look at the anoint him with oil first part. Don't have time today to go into the different opinions of that. Some think it's simply medicinal, which in the New Testament and the Old Testament, it certainly was. Oil was medicinal. Remember I told you last week the, the, the parable Jesus told about the Samaritan, the good Samaritan that, that helped uh, the man that had been beaten, what did he do? 
he put oil on him, right? Because it was a medicinal thing, right? But also some think it's just simply spiritual, like symbolic. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit, all right? Listen, I, I think ultimately this whole thing, as you're going to see, is a spiritual issue. I'm only concerned about what side you take on it because he says you need to pray. And what do you pray? What did it say in verse 15? The prayer of faith. Does anyone know what the prayer of faith is? Let me take you to it. 1 John 5, 14. 1 John 5, 14. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. That's the prayer of faith. We pray in accordance to whose will? His will. Jesus prayed in accordance to whose will? God's will, right? I really wish this cup were passed from me, but not my will, but yours be done. We pray in the will of God, according to his will. Now, let me ask you this question. Is it God's will that Christians in the church always be physically healthy? Or is it God's will that Christians in the church always be spiritually healthy? Which is really God's will? He always wants you spiritually healthy, spiritually fit. And if we pray that prayer of faith, it says it'll heal the sick, right? Wrong. What does it say? It will save the sick. Healing isn't mentioned there. It will save the sick. The Lord will raise them up. The Lord will restore him. Interesting, isn't it? And so, though all illness is not due to sin, some illnesses may be due to sin, right? We, we, we looked at that in 1 Corinthians 11.30 when people were abusing communion. He says there's many that are sick and asleep, right? Because you're being punished, right? But during times of suffering, like they've been, some people get weakened in their faith to the point where they fall into sin, right? And, and so they're being sick, they're sick, right? So this physical sickness that comes in, is, in here as well. Even the psalmist writes, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word, right? Sometimes affliction gets me back on the track. Right, so what does that person need to do? What's it say? Confess your sins. Look at verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now that should have blown your mind. You confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be what? Healed. I would have put healed up by the prayer of faith, but it didn't say that. The prayer of faith will save, restore the person. Confessing your trespasses will heal you. Do you see what's going on here, folks? We're talking about suffering. Yeah, there's some physical sickness involved, but that physical sickness is involving sin. Why do the elders need to be present? I don't need to be there to put oil on somebody, but this someone wants to confess their sins. They want to be restored spiritually. And so, yeah, the elders of the church are called to help this person. Now, listen, don't get me wrong. I have been called in to pray over people for their physical health and anointed oil on them uh, for years. I, I've done it, and I'm happy to do that because I still believe in praying and that God can heal. Okay, so don't get me wrong. Don't, now people are like, oh, I don't want to call Kevin. He doesn't want to pray. Absolutely, I will pray for you. What I'm saying is that's not strictly what this verse is about. This is not a blanket statement of, oh, this is how we heal everybody. It's not. It isn't. In fact, most people... Well, all the people that I've ever prayed over in that terms, usually it was the point of where they were dying of cancer, and that did not turn around. The truth is, is that sickness, illness, disease runs rampant in our world because we live in a fallen world. So getting back to the point of what we're talking about is the gift 
around today, the gift of healings. Well, I think it would take a brave soul to deny the existence of it or rule it out, any possibility of it. I wouldn't limit that is what I'm saying because, um, well, it's a sovereign God, right? He can, he can give that gift to whoever he wants, but it would appear, as is in the case of miracles, that that gift is really quite rare as we look in the examples of, of Scripture and, and the example of New Testament. I think what we wanna, I want to leave you with is this. We should have the mindset of Paul when it comes to these difficulties, and that's 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. says this, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's the mindset. Our outward man is perishing. Sickness is here. God doesn't necessarily want us all physically healthy. We'll pray for people because I believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of God to heal. Um, I don't believe we have a bunch of people running around the church who have that particular gift. Me and the elders, we've gone and prayed for people. We anointed them. Guess what? Um, at the very least, it's a spiritually comforting time for that person as they end their last days. But also, I fully trust as we're praying that God can heal that person. He may very well do it. So I think we do what Paul says here. We look for the things that are not seen. We don't look at the things that are seen. We don't find our hope in those things. Could, could, you, could, you, could you take that from this past year? You couldn't, right? If this past year has taught us anything, is that we don't control any of that. And if there's gifts of healings running around all over the place, where were they to turn the tide of COVID-19? It just shows us we're very, very small. And God can do whatever he wants to do. And in that time, and, and this time, I think he wants us to rely upon him. Which let's turn our eyes to him. Ultimately, it's up to him. Ultimately, we trust in him. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. Lord, we thank you that you are a sovereign God, that you are in control of these things. That even though we live in a fallen world where sickness and death and decay reign, Lord, they don't reign supreme. You reign supreme. If Scripture teaches us anything, you have the power to turn those things around. But also, as we look at the New Testament, we see that the apostles, Lord, they, they, they were afflicted greatly. Yet they served you with joy, wholeheartedly, Lord, and even to their deaths. So Lord, just pray that we wouldn't be de de derailed here in our mission for you, Lord, just by wanting a temporal relief, Lord, but that we would look to the things that are unseen, to the glories that await us in heaven with you. God, we want to be your servants. Would you help us, Lord, to not stumble around these things, Lord? So many pitfalls, so many counterfeits out there, Lord. Help us to just be discerning. Help us to be Bereans and properly search your word to understand these things. But Lord, mostly I just pray that as we come into chapter 13 here, ultimately we're seeing Paul's whole point is that nothing should be done without love. Lord, help us to love one another truthfully and wholly and sacrificially. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.